Hi, I'm Steve Mabb, Chair of the Australian Shareholders Association, and we're proud to be hosting the 2024 Investor Conference in Melbourne from the 19th to the 21st of May. And we're stoked that Phil, the host of this podcast, is going to be our special guest MC. If you haven't heard much about the ASA Conference, it's a flagship event that attracts around 300 investors and industry professionals, including the Chair of National Australia Bank this year, the Chair of AGL. We have Dr. Sam Hupert, the founder and CEO of Primedicus, and we've also got Richard White, the founder and CEO of WiseTech coming along, along with many others. For a limited time, new members can enjoy special pricing on registration for the upcoming conference, along with a complimentary 12-month digital membership with the ASA. That's two-day conference registration plus one-year ASA membership for $499, a saving of $150. Simply search for Australian Shareholders Conference Register, click on two-day conference non-member, enter the discount code MEM, as in member, 499, the number's 499, so that's MEM 499 to claim your special offer. Come along and meet me and Phil at the conference. We look forward to seeing you there. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shares for Beginners. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Humans are hardwired to be emotional. It's the one thing that you really can't be because it makes success almost impossible. And the problem is even if you can locate your biases and control them, you're being affected subliminally by others. Hi, and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. Now, we've had a message from Daryl from Wollongong. And Daryl, thank you very much for your kind words about the podcast. It's a great inspiration for me. Daryl, you've asked about the psychology in share investment, and we've got the perfect guest today for you. I'm going to introduce Michael D. Now, Michael is from Pythagoras Investing, which is a subscription service in the business of predicting share price behavior using mathematics. Hi, Michael. How are you going? How are you going, Phil? Tell me about yourself, a little bit about your background and yourself. I'm, um, I grew up in South Australia and uh, I did an accounting degree uh, for my sins in South Australia. Did a bit of work as an accountant, realised that I really wasn't cut out to be an accountant and I went back to school and I did nine-tenths of a marketing degree. I did a degree in finance and investment and for some reason I did my CPA and from there I totally switched into investing um, for my work, which I was enjoying. When I was working in accounting, I was making investments in things like APN and Fairfax and Woolworths and um, made good money and really got, to me, the logical step away from accounting was to do something that used that skill. So from there, I worked in a, in a business called Austrust, an executive trustee in Adelaide. And then I moved to uh, Queensland, where I'd uh, come across a lovely lady who's uh, who became my wife and is still, and I worked there as a small companies research analyst, portfolio manager, and in the end, I was the two IC of the group. From there, I started a boutique, and from there, I moved into Pythagoras, which is today. 
First of all, can we talk about volatility and how volatility is traditionally seen by investors in the market? Yeah, sure. It's a good question, and it's not very well defined, this word volatility. But if we give it a definition, it's a statistical measure of return variance. Now, what that means is the size of the daily price change. So if we just boil that down, it means how much does the price move up and down? And then the statisticians get a little bit cleverer and they compare it to itself. Now, traditionally, volatility is seen, when it's high, is seen to be risky. So a stock with high volatility is risky. But what we know is without volatility, there's not an opportunity to profit. So that's a problem as well. We know we need some volatility. We don't like it to be too high. uh, And yet we fear it. And so it's really quite an important conundrum. But what I'd say to you is the measure of volatility as it stands now isn't all that useful for most investors. There's not much that they can uh, get their hands on and use. Now, this formed a part of my early ideas when I was working uh, at ending up at QIC, which I finished in the April of 2008. And for those of you who don't know, QIC is the Queensland Investment Corporation. When I joined... Is that a government body? It's an, it's an enterprise-based government body. So it had a commercial board, it had commercial um, um, staff at every level. But when, I was, when I'd left there in the April of 2008 and starting my own boutique, which is the reason I left, I spent a lot of time predicting geopolitical events and the outcomes thereof. And, and if you remember back to 2008, and if any of your listeners do, I remember um, talking to people and saying, we've had six of the most catastrophic events that you could ever have, and we've had them all in one year, and that was 2008. So I was very busy trying to work out what it was that really should happen as a result of this. Tell us about um, the behavioural biases that affect in- investing behaviours. Yeah, this is fascinating. I love this because human nature, if you think about the stock market, it is a, it's, it's a small cosm of uh, human behaviour. There was a chap who wrote a book, and I'm not big on investment books, but, but this quote I think is excellent. He's um, Benjamin Graham, and he wrote a book called The Intelligent Investor. And he says, and I quote, The investor's chief problem, even his worst enemy, is likely to be himself. And on the face of it, you'd scratch your head and think, what's that all about? But it's about this, the way investors think and feel about what they're doing at the time of investing is critical. Now, as human beings, we are hardwired to be emotional. You can try as hard as you like, but the reality is we are emotional beings. But the one success factor for being a very good investor is to be unemotional. So we're almost doomed from the beginning. And one of the ways that I like to try and show people, not that they're doomed, but to actually pull back the covers and say, hey, these are the things you've got to fight um, to be a better investor. And so um, just to know that biases can be cognitive, i.e. the way we think or a rule of thumb, they can be emotional. And they can be cognitive and emotional. And that's probably the scariest group of all, to be very, very honest. What's the difference between cognitive and emotional biases? There are big groupings of them. But if you think about cognitive, it's, it's the way you literally think. 
we'll go into some examples in a minute and I'll and I'll try and bring that to life for you but if you think of a rule of thumb uh, I've bought this style of stock before and it's been a winner for me uh, that would be a great example of some uh, a thought process I, I've bought this stock before and it's been a loser or I'm not going to buy that stock because my grandfather lost money on it so there are lots of uh, mechanisms by which we influence and our own thinking and we actually have to interrupt that thinking to be the better investor if you will I guess there'd be some investors sitting uh, listening to this thinking, well, I'm not biased. Well, that might be the case and you might be the odd one. But the problem is for you, if you're reading research, if you're digesting what's in the media, if you're consuming the massive data that's out there and, and, and interested in it, if you rely on that human analysis, you are affected by the behavioural biases or others. Now, if you're affected by them, the problem is it's almost impossible to know which biases they have, let alone what you have. So it's there and it's subliminal and it's actually very, very important to uh, try and think your way through or understand how you actually get away from these. Can you explain some of these biases, please? Yeah, sure. So I've got 12, but confirmation bias is probably the first one that I would outline. Now, confirmation bias is simply this. It's the human tendency to hear what they want to hear, not what they don't. So they actually, in a general sense, reject everything that doesn't confirm their view. Now, I have to say, the best investors I've ever worked with were the ones who said, yes, I hear your positive view. Go and find me the most negative view you can find. It's seeking the balance. Now, the reason we do this is because when we've got a decision to make and we haven't made it, it gives us a feeling of uncertainty. Now, in, in psychology, they call it cognitive dissonance, which is that, that unease. And what I'd say to you is you've got to try and keep that unease as long as you can whilst maintaining, in the end, your view or not. And that gives you a greater ability to not be overconfident. And when you're overconfident, you get blindsided by the potential for um, blow-ups and you'll never see it coming because the reality is you had excluded it from your thinking. The second point is information bias. Now, in our world, we've got data and we've got information. And one of there are times in investing where we feel the need to dig into all pieces of data we can. And it's usually when we're stressed or under duress. And so this need to assess everything, which is what my kids call FOMO, which is the fear of missing out, um, we do it to try and reduce the risk. Now, the problem with it is we end up trying to consume so much information from so many different sources that we end up confusing ourselves. And it actually takes away the enjoyment from investing. And there's one thing investing ought to be is fun. And if it's not fun, we won't do it. And if we don't do it, we actually mark ourselves down for our later life and that's a problem that we need to avoid. So the third one is regret or loss aversion and really this is all about being wrong and there's an alarming statistic that says um, we prefer as humans to avoid a loss rather than make a gain and we, we prefer it twice as much as making a gain which is ridiculous. Now this has got something to do with, or broadly to do with, past price anchoring. 
i.e. I bought it for a dollar, it's now 90 cents, I'm holding on until I get a dollar one. And that's a foolish behaviour. And it leads to poor price decisions or poor investment decisions because if that stock's at 90 cents and things have changed and genuinely changed and there's another opportunity, it might be an IPO or another uh, good opportunity that comes by, the difficulty is people will be indignant on the, back, on the basis that they will not sell that stock. And therefore, they forgo the upside. They forgo the opportunity uh, cost or the benefit um, of of actually making a change. And that introduces more risk into their portfolios. The next one is hindsight bias. And this is a fairly simple one. Uh, it's, it's that we see the good in past events as predictable and the bad is not predictable. So we can go home to our partner and say, I made this amount of money and I knew it was going to happen, or we can say I lost a bit of money and no one would have known that was going to happen. Um, the reality and the difficulty is it, with it is that it stops you learning from your mistakes. It stops you looking back and going, yeah, I made a mistake here and here and I could have been better than this. And that's one of the things that actually maths can help an enormous amount with to, to reduce that one, but as a broader level as well. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The fifth one is herd effect. And if you're in a company, you would, you would have heard the terminology uh, groupthink, which is another way of expressing it. I'd say I heard a great expression of this, taking cover in the herd the other day. There you go. That's another way to look at it. It's, it's interesting. Um, the way I'd put it is you're gaining comfort because everybody else believed the same thing. And that just says to me you're either all right or you're all wrong. And this notion of safety in numbers and being in the herd, that works for an animal because it protects them from being eaten, but it doesn't work in investing. And so this herd mentality, which gets into, and, and you hear it, all of a sudden the taxi drivers are telling you about their favourite biotech stock or, or technology stock. It leads to speculative bubbles. So I'll use the example of cryptocurrency. Now, there's no value you can attribute to cryptocurrency that would, that would allow it to be valued, for instance, Bitcoin at $22,000. And this was my constant question to people who were proponents of cryptocurrency. It may be that this evolves into a meaningful thing in our lifetimes, but how do you value it? The only way it had a price was when the herd got behind it, and you saw what happened when the herd stops. And there was a lot of naughty things going on in the trading of cryptocurrency, so we'll just leave that aside. But it's a great example of, um, of herd mentality. And what happens is you get people in the herd, they feel comfort with the herd, and as the price goes up, they don't know why, but they're buying. But as the price comes down, they end up selling because they didn't know why they bought in the first place. Now, that's the definition of a capital loss. 
And that's what I call counterintuitive investing. What I call intuitive investing is when things are the most uncertainty and you've been able to garner some level of comfort, you're buying. And when people are more excited where we were at the top of the herd, that's where you want to be letting some go, or at least letting, uh, even letting the whole position go. So you're actually counter to the psychology of what's going on for most people more broadly. If a bit of a contrarian. A bit contrarian, yes, and a little bit Warren Buffett, if you like. That's, it's the kind of philosophy that he uh, has in his investing world as well. Um, there's another factor that, or a couple of factors that come in. Now, I'm not a media knocker. They've got a great job to do and, and they do it, but they use language which is very emotive. And people get onto this, the market's being smashed. And I look at the market and it's down 0.7 of a percent. And I think, well, it's not exactly getting smashed, but it's not doing well. We don't need that in our lives. And that causes people to grip with it. And the other aspect that I'd say is quite important and, and actually worth mentioning is when people have got money to invest, so they've got it in their pocket, the old saying is, it burns a hole in our pocket. You've heard that. It literally does. When people have got money in their super account or whatever it is and they want to invest it, something explodes in their head and the first thing they do at the earliest opportunity is just put it all in. The thing I'd say to you is cash is your most valuable commodity. And cash is there to be used cautiously and judiciously and if you can hold yourself while the herd is running and wait until those opportunities arise, that, as in the bargain or the, the sensible opportunities, that is your greatest asset. Um, it's probably the biggest thing that I'd love people to walk away from um, this discussion. And that, that we were talking earlier about that uncertain time where a third of people get out a third of people actually do nothing and a third of people make a new investment in the time of great uncertainty. They're the wise ones. The sixth one is quick restraint bias. It's overestimating our ability to um, show restraint in the face of temptation. And this is about greed. And greed causes us to do some weird things, but one of them is to actually reinvest in the same stocks over and over again. And what that means is we've got less diversification. And so our portfolio, as we construct it, is more subject to the externalities or the shocks that come towards us. And that's never a great thing. Okay, you've started investing in the share market. Now, how do you track trades, dividends, distributions, and franking credits and all those other goodies? Just throw away those clunky spreadsheets with ShareSite. I have my portfolio on ShareSite and everything is automatically recorded. ShareSite are pleased to extend a special offer to listeners of this podcast. Two months free on an annual premium plan. Go to ShareSite.com forward slash shares for beginners and sign up now for a seven day free trial. That's ShareSite.com slash shares for beginners. Oversimplification. We could spend an hour on this alone, but we don't have that time. Um... This is where humans want simple explanations to big things like the stock market. It's simply not possible. If we use China as an example, and if we just spend one minute, China has a, a need to build a nation. It needs to build road, rail, infrastructure, housing, you name it. It doesn't have to do all of that with a profit motive. In fact, as a nation, it's not a profit motive style of country. There are individuals who are trying to make money, of course. But if you look at it from an external point of view with an, 
with a Western mentality and thinking I'm competing with a Chinese entity and if I can get my profit levels right, I won't be subject to um, an entity that will do things that are not economically rational. You've automatically lost. Because if it's to the advantage of the Chinese nation, which is effectively controlled from that inner circle of the government, if you call it that, uh, you're on a loser. So I think uh, oversimplifying becomes your, one of your biggest mistakes you can make. So if it's me, I try to get away from anything that the Chinese can do with great ability because the predictability is not what we hope. Next one is worry. Now, it, it should come as a great comfort to people that this is normal. And it's not abnormal in any way, shape or form. And we just need to embrace the fact that that's who we are. Now, the difficulty with worry is that it evokes memories of past negatives. And the difficulty with that is that it actually alters our judgment and it alters our perceived risk. And that's the third of people who sell when things are starting to look a bit rocky and and they don't necessarily uh, have the tenacity to buy when things are down. It's those, um, they, they actually have their risk tolerance altered to such a point where they need the herd um, positivity instead of the counterintuitivity in their investing to help them along. Familiarity is um, the next one. It's a preference for the well-known investments. And again, I call it the zone of sensible excitement. It's that little field in front of you that says, well, that's where I'm comfortable and I won't go ahead. Some people can move that out. Some people get it um, moved back in on them. But again, it leads to a greater risk of losses because people concentrate their investments. The next one is neglect of probability. Now, every broking report you would have ever read will have one estimate in each year. The reality is, it's usually what they call the central case. And usually the central case is one of the most optimistic. The problem for us is that positives occur, but big negatives can hit you as well. And so we need to take account of a range of possibilities in in our thinking and again human bias is more likely to be positive when you talk about that estimate that number that they're um, saying in their broker reports what is that estimate so if you think of all of the fundamental work that's done in the world so let's let's use a notional widget maker what happens is people sit with the management and they sit with their own models which are sometimes incredibly complex and they'll make assumptions, and this is where the positive and negative comes in. It'll be that we're going to sell a million widgets next year, and even though the price was a dollar this year, we think that it should go up to dollar five next year. And when we, in the year beyond that, we think it'll go up another 4%, and we're not going to sell a million, we're going to sell 1.15 million. And so we're making assumptions on assumptions on assumptions. And even though that will be in collaboration with the management and advice that can be given, I remember a great, a great quote that a small cap uh, manager had in the paper once, and I won't mention his name because I don't want to embarrass him, but he said, small companies management lie like toads. And I thought about that, and, and initially I was quite bemused by it, but as experience crept in, I realised there's no one you can trust other than your own estimates. 
And if you, if they say 1.15 million uh, widgets is the correct number, you have to make a judgment on that. And all of those judgments, as the broking analyst, then end up in that one central number. That's, is this the the price forecast we're talking about? So this will be the earnings per share number. The price forecast, let's expand on that, can be created in a number of different ways. If we used probably the simplest, it's a price earnings multiple. So people say uh, the earnings are going to be, let's say, $10 per share. And let's say the market estimate, for argument's sake, is 15 times. And we make a judgment that our widget company is at least as good as the market. Um, but it does have some negative attributes. So we're going to say that our earnings of $10 is worth the same as the average for the market. This is how simple a lot of these judgments are. So 15 times, which is the price-earnings ratio of the market, times our $10 would give us a forecast value for the share price of $150. Now then they look at the share price that that it's trading at it in the market, and let's say it's trading at $100. So they would look at it and say, well, it's now $50 undervalued, and therefore I have a margin of safety. What I'm talking about is if you went back to those original forecasts and said 1.15 is too high, and um, a dollar uh, and f- uh, Dollar and five, I think, was our example for the cost of the widget or the sales price for the widget is too high. Let's make it a dollar two, and let's make it uh, 1.05 million widgets. Then we're making an assumption which is different from whatever that estimate was. Then even if you applied the same logic of a price earnings ratio of 15, you would get a totally different metric, and your margin of safety might end up being maths has escaped me there, but it might be 12 percent instead of 50. So you're getting totally different scenarios. And then what we're talking about here is what if there's an X factor and let's say the Chinese open a widget factory. So this is where we're talking about probability that you were alluding to uh, previously? Yeah. So what I'm talking about is probability of events occurring. So, So to continue that line, if a widget factory opened in China and they were producing widgets for $0.80 cents and we were trying to sell them for five. all of a sudden our estimate of $10 per share might really be 6 And our, even if our PE was still correct at 15 6 times 15 is $90, which is actually $10 worse than the market. But then some smart cookie will come in and say, but this company is not as good as the market. It's not worthy of a 15 times multiple. It's really worthy of a 10 times multiple. We then quickly shift from our $6 earnings per share and a PE of 10 to be a price expectation of 60. So you see how quickly that whole scenario unfolds in front of you because we've made an estimate here when the estimate really ends up over here. So it's it's all about having broader spectrum of opportunity, thought and behaviour and knowledge about what's really going on. Well, let's get back on the track with the uh, the biases. Where are, we, where are we up to? 11. And this one's easy. It's greed. And we get what we incentivise. And when we look at 
the power of incentives, there's no greater example of exactly that than our own banking inquiry that's just been completed. Now, this is more about the behaviour of people in the stock market, in the companies. So I don't want to belabor that too much, but, but be aware where the money flows, so too does the greed. Now, the last one is the 12th one. I know there's a fair bit here. It's, it's just for fun. It's the pub bias. It's after a certain hour, after a certain number of drinks, anything anybody tells you, forget it. So if I could, if I could just summarise the, the biases here, humans are hardwired to be emotional. It's the one thing that you really can't be because it makes success almost impossible. And the problem is, even if you can locate your biases and control them, you're being affected subliminally by others. Now, if you look at all the literature, mostly it just says, we'll just reduce the biases, which I think is just a stroke of absolute stupidity. Because um, even if you could get rid of yours, you can't get rid of everyone else's. So if I just tie us back to Pythagoras now, one of the things that we're trying to do is to remove the human because the human is immediately flawed and we've just displayed in 12 how flawed we are at investing and how difficult it is to be unemotional. And this is what Pythagoras does. It actually cuts through the emotion to try and get to the core of what's really going on. And so what we're doing is overcoming the worst uh, investor's worst enemy using maths and predict those behaviours and do all of that complex analysis and boil it down to buy BHP at $35.20 to $35.70 and that's your recommendation on the day. Now, if you look back through time and all the great philosophers and uh, scientists, the big thing that they always used and the reason for our name being Pythagoras, they used maths to solve the biggest problems. And so that's what we're doing. And we're also using the fear and the volatility in the market to our benefit and trying to make it easy for people who want to make a difference to their life. So tell us a bit more about Pythagoras's return. Sure. So the return is per stock. And so we look at um, the individual returns based on, on that basis because people don't choose all 120 stocks. They might choose one or three or five or 10. And so everything is done on that basis. But to give you that perspective, back 2016 in January, when the market did that 23% return over that three and a half years, we did about um, 74%. Now, another statistic that probably is good to share is during the GFC, those same 120 companies lost 2.5% in 2008. That was when the market lost 42.5%. And that's a fact that I'm eminently proud of because a lot of our work, probably the biggest amount of mathematical work, has gone into how to avoid getting caught in the downdrafts. And it's much simpler to be able to buy in the downdrafts. It's actually how to keep yourself out of it. What kind of capital do investors need to use Pythagoras in um, implementing this system? Look, to do this properly, what we believe is the right uh, fee to capital is to be less than 4%. I just think that's fair on everyone. 
What that means is because there's an expense in what we do and people will need to use brokers is we say to people you need thirty to fifty thousand dollars per stock to really make the right returns. Now I had a young chap who was very very keen to use our service and he had only ten thousand and I wasn't thinking broadly at the time about any change to the price for him and I kept saying to him no 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 I, I can't take your money because you're not going to be able to make a return until you get to this point. And it was it was too excessive in terms of what he would have needed to do. And um, so I sent him away and, and he came back and he finally said, you can't stop me now, I've got 25000 And so we put him on and, and he subscribed to uh, Rio and we gave him a bit of a helping hand and he's done splendidly and, and very, very happy. One of the things I would say to you is that I understand your subscribers are in that starting phase. And I know a big part of what you're trying to do is educate and help them along the way. And I know, therefore, that their capital is probably not in the thirty to 50000 And so as a result of that, I've been thinking in advance of today about what I'd like to do to try and give them a leg up. Now, I've never done this before, but... I'm going to offer anyone who listened to this point, because they deserve a medal or something, um, the option to um, subscribe to one of five or or any of five stocks that we've nominated. And that's uh, Rio, uh, Orica, Worley, Incitec and ANZ Bank. And we're going to do it for just the 12 months, first 12 months, at two-thirds off. And the logic for that is, my assumption is that your, your folks are starting out, they might have 10 or 15 grand. That means that we can maintain our 4%, which I think is just the decent thing to do. That's a very generous offer. Thanks very much for that. Uh, where can listeners take advantage of this? How do they reach out to you? So um, it's fairly, fairly simple. Our website is pythagorasinvesting.com and it's a forward slash shares for beginners, which is... Um, obviously what you're listening to today. Now, for those of you who don't remember, because lots of us have forgotten our maths from school, Pythagoras is spelt P-Y-T-H-A-G-O-R-A-S. Quite simple. We don't want to offend the man. <laughs> no, well, I remember at school we used to always refer to it as Thaggy's Theorem in our class. <laughs> <laughs> Cheeky buckers. <laughs> Michael, thank you very much for your time today, and thank you very much for coming on the podcast. That's a pleasure. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Shares for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. Thanks to Christopher Soulos for music production with that special Greekalicious flavour. Remember, music always flows, even when the money won't. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 